Thanks, everyone. Great to see you all. And it's always encouraging to see so many people interested in this topic. Um, if you're out the back there, don't feel alone. There's lots of uh, space down here at the sides. Why don't you come and take a seat, lean against the wall. There's a few pockets of seats just in here. We'd love you to feel comfortable during this seminar. I've got a few slides which are going to appear on the screen behind me if we get those teed up now. And um, what I'll do is, because I, I always think it's really important that you just engage with the material. So don't feel like you need to write everything down. I'll make all these slides available for you for free on the Minusol website. You can just get the PDF and then you can just copy them all down. So don't worry about it. It will appear. And also the recording will probably appear as well somewhere on Worship Central website. So you don't even need to write any notes at all. You can just relax and enjoy yourself. Um, let's pray as we begin. This is such an important topic for us. Lord Jesus Christ, we want to welcome you here again by the power of your Holy Spirit. Pray you be present with us now. Give us insight, Lord, into the beautiful minds that you've created within us. We pray for you to break down the divisions within us. We pray we'd be united people with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, typically people think about how to create not how to be creative. Uh, when you ask creatives, uh, you know, how's it going? They typically tell you that either they're being particularly creative or they're not being creative at all. Very few people focus on the process of creativity. Most people focus on the outcomes of creativity. And um, I'm married to quite a creative person, who, a journalist and an artist, and she also makes jewellery in her spare time, and she, she doesn't like me to really see uh, the, the product or the outworking of her creativity until it's finalised in a way that she's satisfied with. So we tend to focus not on the creative process, but on the outcomes of our creativity. But what we need to engage with is the reality that we're all using our creative gifting and we have a creative gifting to nurture within our minds and actually how we nurture that is much more important than the outcome of a particular piece of work. And that's not just my observation, that's the observation of artists and musicians throughout history. And sadly, I think we live in a world which idolizes the outcomes of our creativity rather than seeing the beauty of God, the creator, in his creative children. That actually within God, if you were going to take a theological perspective, is the interpenetrating nature of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that make up the Holy Trinity. It's the outworking of that creative energy from which other things are created. That God's creative nature is moving across the waters in Genesis chapter 1, and from that point of God's creative nature, creation comes into being. But God doesn't, look, he looks at his creation and says, yes, it's good. But he doesn't then say, let's, let, yes, it's good, let's now frame it and let's now put it on the wall in the universe and everyone can walk past it. One day it will be in a museum and everyone will admire it. He says, actually, now how can I have relationship with it? And I think we've lost the art of having relationship, if you like, with our creativity for the sake of having something that we can show for our creativity. I think that's a massive mistake. Because life's for living. You aren't just a museum of artifacts. And you're not just about products that you've created that other people can celebrate. And the purpose of this seminar is not to give you a three-step formula to creativity, but to make you more aware of your, the creative process of which you're a part, a more constructive and sympathetic view of your mind, and a few simple methods to try and support and possibly even enhance your creative work, which would be nice, wouldn't it? Just wiggle your toes for a minute. Humor me. Now, the activity of wiggling your toes 
is an outworking of the function of your brain. And we think a lot about the outworking of the brain in terms of the activity of the brain, but not very much about the brain itself. And I want you to start asking the question whether or not you've made an enemy of your brain. Ray Bradbury says, thinking is the enemy of creativity, and I could not disagree with him more. There are, has long been a tradition amongst creatives to deny the fact that their brain plays the lion's share in their success in terms of creativity. You will often hear creatives saying, yeah, it just came to be in a moment. You know, I was just there, I was just lost in wonder, love and praise, and then this, this song just came out of the blue in my head, and, and I've written this amazing tune, and you know, it's the culmination of my years and years of creativity. Taken to the extreme, you find the brain or the mind is treated with a level of contempt. I hate my brain. My brain lets me down. My brain is blocking me now. People talk about brain block. I've got creative block. I've got writer's block. I've got brain block. I hate my brain. If only my brain would give me something more, something better. It's no small irony, since thinking is creativity. And Christians aren't exempt from this sort of mythology. Often they create a new justification for the brain hatred by suggesting that creativity comes solely from God's divinity, that creativity somehow uh, has appeared uh, in uh, some incredible and wondrous gleaming moment of light and revelation. It's got nothing to do with what's going on within them. In fact, many of you, particularly if you come from more Calvinistic tradition, will be taught that what is in within you is all sin and evil and ill, but what is in God is all good and holy, and you need to deny the worm within you to celebrate the glory of Christ without of you. Actually, we've made it our business to, if you like, destroy the ego in a sort of strange, masochistic kind of a way. Anything that, that's bad that happens is your fault, and everything that good, that's good that's happened is, is God's fault, but, but you're nothing to do with the good bit. You're everything to do with the bad bit. And that's not the fullness of life that Christ has called you to, and he's not called us to hate the body. In fact, Paul talks in Corinthians about loving the body. Yes, it's a metaphor for the church, but he's talking about celebrating the whole body, even the parts that need to be modestly treated. The whole body plays a part. Everything is important and functional and significant. And so I want to challenge you about the idea that your brain is somehow blockage to your creativity, or your brain is, in fact, your enemy. And there are lots of reasons why people use that kind of motif. If we look at uh, the next slide, you'll see here um, Dr. Keith Sawyer says that people believe creativity comes from a sudden moment of insight that is this magical burst idea. Extensive research has shown, though, that when you're creative, your brain is using the same building blocks that you use every day. Your brain is doing the same thing when you're being creative as when you're driving your car or as you, when you're baking a cake. That's very creative, but you could be creative driving your car as well, who knows. The key thing is that the, the functional things that you do every day, those normal things of getting dressed and brushing your teeth, all come from the same parts of your brain that creativity comes from. And I think the reasons why people mythologize creativity are broad and important for us to identify. Some people want to say, I am not responsible for my success or for my lack of success. 
So people who are unwilling to apply themselves to the creative process often just can blame the fact that they haven't had some kind of eureka moment towards creativity as the reason why they haven't been creative. You know, they can say, oh, well, you know, I just haven't had one of those kind of moments yet. And you can say, but have you actually done any work? Well, no, I've just been waiting for that moment, you know, when the idea comes to me. It's also a way in which we can actually be offensive towards others. Uh, we can suggest that other people are lucky or especially anointed or they just, you know, they've just got it and we haven't. So it's a way of attacking the self and in a way attacking other people to say, oh, well, Tim Hughes, he's just lucky. You know, he just happened to like wake up one day and come out with this incredible song and that's just you know, good fortune for him, or, or that's God's grace and favor on him, but it's, that's not what I've received. If you knew Tim, you'd, knew, you'd know that wasn't, wasn't the case, that he's got literally hundreds of journals filled with different song ideas going on all the time. Then there's the idea that inspiration, not hard work, is what's important. That we're all looking for that moment of inspiration, but not a moment of hard work, of hard labor. I'm, I did RA level, and um, I was very consumed in the final piece what would the final piece look like? Now, I would spend a long time scrunching up and screwing up pieces of paper, and sometimes even pieces of canvas, and putting them in the bin because I wasn't satisfied with the trialed attempt towards creativity. I wanted something that looked truly great. But the reality to my misfortune was that the examiners from my examining board were interested in the whole process of creativity behind the final piece. And the people who did really well at our A-level had an incredible portfolio of, of supporting material to the final piece. I had three great final pieces. I just didn't have very much supporting material. I found myself back-sketching to kind of suggest that there was a story behind the picture that I painted because I put so much stuff in the bin. And I want to say to you that the process is key in your creative world. Loving your brain is key in your creative world and building on this is important because actually hard work is, is, is as if not more important than the inspiration that you begin the process with. And then there's the idea again, the Christian perspective that false humility or super spiritualization adds value. You know, I was fasting for 40 days and I was just poured into scripture and this incredible verse just popped out of me. And then I've, I've, I just felt the Lord, he just almost, he gave me this song, like a ticker tape version across my mind. It's got nothing to do with me. It's just the special anointed song of God that was released into my heart. Wow. It's amazing, isn't it? It's incredible. I now need to go and buy that and download that because that is clearly the anointed song that no one else has received. It makes it more special. But is that true? Of course it's not true. God uses all sorts of things for his glory. That's not to say that God might not release a song in somebody's heart. But let's not try and avoid the process for an over-spiritualized version of the same. Let's say, God, you're in me. You're in the process. And actually, it's okay to come up with lots and lots of duff songs in our own opinion to find that one song that we believe is great. In, in our world at the moment, there's been a lot of, particularly amongst creatives, this idea of objectifying creative 
infrastructure and therefore objectifying our creative frustration. You see this idea about the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain. You guys have all read about this in magazines, no doubt, that right-sided brained people are somehow far more creative than left-sided brained people that actually all of the light and colour and beauty of life is found in right-sided brained people. But left-sided brained people are accountants and tax collectors and <laughs> generally boring. Yeah. Neuroscience can help us to understand how the brain functions, but really, does it matter which side of the brain functions creatively and which side of the brain functions more rationally or more analytically? Does it really matter? Is it important to know? Your brain typically, your heart typically sits slightly towards the left of your chest cavity. If you've got a big heart on the left, is that, is that significant and important? Because there's not very much there on the right. Does that make you a weak-hearted person or a, a, someone who lacks courage or value? No, you hopefully have all got a heart pumping in your chest right now, like you've all got a brain sitting in your head. It doesn't matter which side performs these sorts of functions. And again, if we can say, oh, you're a right-sided brained person, oh, it's easy for you, that releases us from an obligation towards working with a creative gift that we've been given. Does it kind of materialize it and take away actually the process of supporting the creative gifts that you've actually been given in your head? And just because someone's maybe got a little bit more activity going on on the right side of their brain, does that make them more successful creatively? No. I know an awful lot of incredibly creative people who've never written a song, never sung a song or played an instrument or done a painting or done very much at all apart from take copious amount of drugs. That's their reality. They would be brilliant if they learnt to paint. Just because they've got some more activity going on over there doesn't make them more creative than you. So what I want to say to you is value what you have within you. Value what God's given you and don't objectify your creative frustration by blaming your brain. Instead, I want you to love your brain on purpose. It sounds really material, doesn't it? Isn't it unspiritual to do this? What are you talking about, Will? You know, we, we, we don't really want to objectify ourselves at all. We don't want to start talking about our brains. You know, being a Christian and being a creative worship leader or being a musician, you know, these things can't be qualified by the constraints of our mind, surely. This is the kind of classic Gnostic outlook that was propagated in the first and second centuries where people wanted to kind of deny the body, deny Christ was really fully human, and say instead he was mythological, he was spiritual, he was, he was aside from the body, because actually the body was base and human and pathetic and broken, and what we really wanted was a saviour who wasn't really incarnational. We can still be Gnostic today in the way we approach our creativity. Creative people, this, is, this comes from Sweden, the Professor Frederick Ullen here says, creative people, like those with psychotic illnesses, tend to see the world differently to most. Creativity is uncomfortable. There's actually, relax when I tell you this, but there's a, a, a strong correlation between the brains of creative people and those with schizophrenic illness. It might not be such a surprise to you. But the reason for that is that there's a, a low level of D2 
dopamine within the thalamus, a part of, another part of the brain. A low level of D2 dopamine in the thalamus is present in those with psychotic illness and those who are highly creative. Now, D2 dopamine in the thalamus creates stronger rigidity in thinking patterns. And actually, a high-functioning frontal lobe constrains the amygdala, the ideas part of the brain, into very rational lines of cognition. And therefore, those people can have less lateral and exploratory thinking. People who are creative are able to suspend reality for longer than those people who are less creative. They're able to imagine more or to daydream more broadly and more creatively, and that's a gift to them, but it is also uncomfortable, as you see with Vincent van Gogh or John Nash, the, um, the American mathematician who's depicted in the Beautiful Mind film, that creativity and depression and anxiety and even serious mental health issues uh, can sometimes sit alongside one another. And therefore, we have to sometimes take our creativity or the sensitivity of our minds and nurture them particularly well if we're going to live well psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, and as creative people. But equally, this particular nature within your brain provides you with the opportunity to explore more. And so the process is bigger and more viable to you. Lots of um, significant creative companies are creating what are called skunk works. I hope there's limited amounts of skunk, if no skunk involved in skunk works. But uh, the idea of Skunk Works is that they're on, held on retainer a number of creative people, paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to explore life within kind of large adult playrooms where they can weld and draw and paint and computerize. And uh, at the end of the day, Google streams out thousands of ideas from these 30 or 40 people every year, and they take one or two of those ideas to market, and they produce something like an iPad or an iPhone, or an iWatch. Because at the end of the day, some people have incredible creative potential. And I want to say to you that you have incredible creative potential. And I'm not advocating creating some sort of Worship Central skunk works for you today. But what I want to say is that the cradle of creativity can be created. And actually that God wants to nurture you today and the gifts that he has given you. The nurture and compassion are words which we don't hear very much in the 21st century church, where we often are seeking you know, a big experience, and actually where failure can be kind of eradicated from the picture. I want to encourage you to a more authentic and a more exploratory view of creativity in worship. Practically, what can we do then to support creative brain function? Well, let's start with the really basic building blocks of creativity here. Sleep, diet, exercise, and range are the first building blocks of healthy creativity. Sleep, interestingly, often eludes people who are highly creative because they have a model of sleep which normally involves a kind of standard eight hours. But lots of creatives sleep well, but they sleep well in shorter blocks. They tend to dream a lot more and often move into REM sleep where they dream a lot and then move out into waking, wakefulness and they often find that their sleep cycles are slightly different, often attached in pairs rather than triplets. So they might sleep for an hour and 20 minutes and then wake up for a bit and then go back to sleep again. Uh, the significance of sleep is often that it's what, in what psychologists call a morningfulness or eveningfulness in that place of kind of half light that our most creative ideas appear to us 
And so it's an exciting idea that your sleep might not be your enemy after all, but your different sort of sleep actually can be a blessing to you. Uh, creatives need to remember to eat. I've got a really dear friend who's an artist who forgets to eat, so she has an alarm to remind her to eat. Um, she still struggles to eat, but she, she eats because there's an alarm that tells her that her creative function depends on her finding healthy nutrition. Exercise is an interesting aspect of the creative brain. Many of the most creative people in the world have uh, set a limit on the amount of time that they should spend every day in exercise. Proust had to walk for exactly two hours a day. and If he walked for a minute less, he believed that something negative would befall him. So his two-hour walk became really significant for him in the creative process, in thinking about the day. And I would encourage you to think about exercise as a, part, as a supportive aspect of a creative brain function. And then there's range. And by range, we're talking about here a range of stimulus. The worst thing you can do with someone who's interested in worship is to spend your whole time listening to worship songs not that they aren't brilliant, Tim, but just a whole range of, a range of material, a range of music, a range of art, a range of stimulation. I think range is really significant in, in stimulating within you a broad creative base. Creatives are interesting in the sense that they also enjoy social stimulation, but need social withdrawal and solitude. And we'll talk a little bit more about character styles and creatives a little later on. But it's important to recognize that creative people aren't often extroverts. We'll talk again, as I say, a little, a little more about this later on. But social stimulation is really significant in the creative process, as is social withdrawal and solitude, which provide the opportunity for reflection and brain rest. And then you look at this third part here, experience and reflection. Looking on what you've done and what you've experienced and qualifying and quantifying those things, again, just for their own sake, not for art's sake. Just because it's good for you to reflect. Nick Herbert, dear friend of mine, says, my starting point is art. I'm trying to visualize what I can see in my mind. I worked with Nick um, for four years at St. Mary's Bryanson Square, and Nick was like the cat in the hat. He would be there one minute, and then he'd have gone the next. And it was a great frustration to the administration people in my office that Nick would sort of appear and then disappear and then reappear and then disappear. And his administrators, you know, found it desperately difficult trying to pin him down. But he would enjoy range. And that's why he's such a great creative worship writer, because he enjoys range and stimulation. And his office was next to my flat. And in his office were a ton of canvases, and for days he would just be painting. And he paints really well, but no one knows necessarily that Nick Herbert's a great painter. But he's a great painter because he just enjoys range. He just does that for his own pleasure. He's a great photographer. He does that for his own pleasure. That creative range supports the creative work of writing worship songs, which is what he's well known for. Let's look for a minute at the flip side then of creativity because this is really significant for all of us here today. Sylvia Plath says, it's as if neither of us, especially myself, had any skin. I'm afraid I'm not solid but hollow. Sylvia, you'll know, worked from 11 till 30 and she committed suicide. She was one of the most creative writers uh, of the last century. Many people who are highly creative, as we've mentioned already, suffer in the mind with emotional sensitivity, low mood, flows of high and low energy, uh, self-doubt and a critical internal narrative, introversion matched with a stage persona 
and then rapid stimulation and distraction. So every creative person has a flip side, and I think one of the mistakes we make as Christians is that we can deny the flip side for the sake of a glorious victory. Actually, we can suggest that actually there is no flip side to our creativity, that actually we are all good and glorious, and it's great being in worship, and it's always easy, and actually my brain is always my friend. We know that David, who was probably the most creative songwriter in the Bible, suffered terribly from depression. And some of his own songs, uh, if you read in Psalm 45, 46, 47, you'll see uh, references to deep depression and despair in Psalm 51 famously where he accounts his sin. You see uh, that actually the creative mind, the brilliant songwriter mind is aligned to this uh, negative uh, emotional sensitivity or this, this struggle in the mind. Ben Cantillon said to me that when you start to indulge your melancholy, you're in great danger as a creative. And you know, the, the wrestling that we experience uh, in the mind, when we, we, we wrestle with uh, the flip side of our creativity, well, when we deny that flip side, that's when things become difficult. Ron Reynolds said, without good strategies for managing hypersensitivity, Instead of creativity, the result can be to plunge into the emotional depths. And you'll know that Plath and Robin Williams and James Dean, Vincent van Gogh, um, Kurt Cobain, to name just a few, have struggled with incredible creativity and the flip side of this emotional burden. And I think I want to just remind you again that God loves you, that you're precious in his sight. And because he loves you, he wants you to love yourself as well as you love your neighbour. For some of you, if you loved your neighbour as well as you love yourself, you get a big mallet, run around the house and start bashing them in the head. So that's not particularly great loving. You know, but the responsibility we have is to love our neighbour as ourselves, and then to love God. And, and loving yourself as a creative is often about recognising that actually part of your gifting has a flip side that need not be denied. One of the mistakes that we can make is just to say that it is all good and then to fight against or to deny what is also our reality. When actually welcoming the reality, recognizing the reality and managing the reality can help us be more creative for longer. A couple of my friends who are particularly skilled in, in the creative world struggle with their emotional health. And they said initially I used to try and paint my way through it. You know, I would deny it. I would say I am not going to struggle with this. Or I, I'm not even acknowledging it's there. And they said, then I, then I began to realize what I was doing, that actually my painting would become more furious and actually less skilled. And I need to back away and then begin to love myself and be gentle with myself, to take care of myself again, to have a breath, to begin to support myself. The thing is that very few, few people are going to be able to do that for you from the outside. That's one of the things that you have to do for yourself from the inside, to actually nurture yourself with your own vulnerabilities. Many of the Christians I work with seem to struggle with this idea of the internal self-narrative, where they treat themselves like this mule. They put on their hard hat and they kind of try and drag it in a particular direction. I will not give in to this low mood. I will not give in to this anxiety. I am victorious. I refuse it. I'm not stopping. Jeff Crabtree, Crabtree says that 
vulnerabilities and sensitivities, ways of thinking and temperament need to be understood and managed, not only to stay productive, but also to stay healthy. You have to give yourself permission to struggle and not to berate your mind, but to be sympathetic towards it. I am relatively now, I struggle with an anxiety disorder called GAD, Generalized Anxiety Disorder. And so I like to speak to large crowds of people to, as part of my therapy. So it uh, helps me to be well. But I remember when I first, as a Christian leader, when I, this is now nine, or nearly nine years ago, yeah, nine years ago now, when I, when I had a bout of acute anxiety, and it was the first time this happened to me. I was told by a number of Christian leaders, you know, firstly, everyone was trying to put the cross between me and anxiety, which I welcomed, but it didn't have any difference, didn't make a difference, because the cross was already behind, within me, Christ was already within me. There was nothing to be cast out or delivered from. I just was struggling with something that was going on in my brain. And the first thing I thought to myself is, I can't stop. People are depending on me. I need to look strong. And it took someone who wasn't a Christian, a dear friend, to say to me, you know what, Will? Just need to start being kind to yourself. It's interesting, since I've started working in emotional health, I find the Christians are most unkind to themselves. They call kindness themselves self-indulgence. I'm thinking, where did self-compassion become self-indulgence? Where did God create a gospel of self-hatred and self-loathing? I thought he created a gospel of grace and nurture and generosity. So we need to move to this idea of living in process. Actually, the creative process is more important than the creative outcome, as we've said. Keith Sawyer here from University of Washington says, all research shows that the creative process is basically the same, generating ideas, evaluating them, and executing them with many creative sparks over time. Pressurizing yourself to be at a certain place at a certain time is detrimental. And it's detrimental for a number of reasons, but also philosophically, what happens when you find that place of great creativity comes to an end? What happens at the end of the day? Because many of the creative people I've worked with over the years have struggled when actually their piece of greatest work appeared in their, ni- in their 20s, not in their 40s, when they found themselves singing the same song for the last 15 years, hoping that they could write something that was quite as good as their first album, or paint the picture that they painted when they were 30, and now they're 60 and they've never made something quite so profound since. If the outcome is more important than the process, then we're lost to ourselves. And the Christian gospel isn't that Gnostic gospel, it's an integrated one. Tim Hughes, who I interviewed for this talk and I work with now at HDB, says, I find ideas come to me all the time, often riding my bike home. I'm always recording ideas, melodies, and lyrics in my iPhone. It's full of little snippets. As I mentioned earlier, psychologists call this process morningness or eveningness, different times of the day when we're more creative. But actually, creativity is not something that you can do if you just sit down at your desk and hope for the best for eight straight hours. Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century theologian, says that Jesus advocates early rising by rising from the grave super early. I kind of, I like that. I like the idea that he rose from the grave super early because he advocates creativeness. There's something incredibly creative there about Jonathan Edwards' uh, fantastic theology. But, but, but lots of creatives find that in those super early hours of the day, they are, they are at their most creative. And uh, Mozart was a famously early riser always being at his piano by about half past five in the morning. 
I want to encourage you to this idea that there are no uh, nine... Ooh, I missed one. Ah, there we are. I want to encourage you towards this, and your bosses, whoever they are, might not thank me for this one. But I want to say to you that there are no 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. rules for creatives. If this is your job, you need to, again, release yourself from this sort of mechanized view of creativity into a view which is much more free. And um, Ben Cantillon again said to me that two or three hours every afternoon are by far and away his most creative. And Nick Herbert said to me, don't get stuck behind a screen. Move your brain by half a degree. I don't know how you do that, but I like the idea. A study of the most creative people has shown that actually the vast majority are most creative in the early dawn or in the late afternoon. And the center of the day is what we call freewheeling time. It's time when actually you often should release your brain to freewheeling activity. It's a time to go for a long walk or have a long lunch or do generally basic chores or do the stuff that you wouldn't want to do when you're trying to be creative. The mistake to do is to get up and try to do the washing up when you're most creative to try and get everything straight for the day. If I asked you how many people feel like their day is thwarted creatively by loads and loads of tasks before they ever get down to it, then you'll show that you're blocking your own creativity by your expectation of what life should look like as a creative. And actually you need to say, hey, sack it, I'm gonna stay in my pajamas until midday. But that's how I'm gonna be creative because I'm gonna do the creative thing first and I'm gonna do the tasks of the day in the freewheeling part of the day and then I'm gonna come back to my play. I'm a writer, and I often find that my best work is in the late evening, sometimes even the nighttime. The best book I've written, I wrote mainly when I was looking after my first child. And um, I was doing the late shift while my wife went to bed. She went to, eight, to bed at eight o'clock and would feed the baby again at midnight. So between eight and midnight, I had a baby and I would write at my computer. And the baby generally sat still. <laughs> just enjoyed lying there as small babies do. And I, I wrote most of a book then. And I remember her, my wife, who's very creative, she said to me, it's gonna be all mumbo jumbo, whatever's in there, it's all gonna be higgledy piggledy. You know, I can't, what, what, you know, what, what are you gonna say? What have you said? You haven't slept for like weeks. I said, I know, but I think this is how my most creative stuff is coming to life. It's, it's unexpected and it's important that you release yourself to this idea of the freewheeling day. Tony Schwartz, so a great writer, talks about writing in 90-minute sprints. 90 minutes is a great cycle of creativity. You know, one and a half hours of great work every day will set you on task. Disciplined in discipline is how I like to describe it. That actually you are disciplined in your ill indiscipline. Because this isn't just a happenstance, it's not just something that happens naturally. You have to be disciplined in your ill-discipline. You have to, have to say, I'm going to be disciplined not to do the washing up right now. I'm going to be disciplined not to organize my files right now. I'm going to be disciplined not to send 10 emails right now. I'm just going to do the creative thing and be creative right now, which might mean kicking back with some Play-Doh or kicking back with some song lyrics or kicking back with some paint or however you want to play or some words, whatever you want to do. Just kick back and think about being creative rather than actually fulfilling tasks first. Of course, supporting the creative process often comes through great relationships. I call these creationships because creationships are about sparks. They're about sparks of relationship. 
And um, Nick says, spark off people, see how other people see things, how they see God. Brian Eno, who has outworked many of the greats in music, and still lots of people don't know who he is, says every collaboration helps you to grow, and he's famous for incredible collaborations. Ben says no creative has all the elements, musically or lyrically. That actually creationships are partly a reflection of God himself. They're a reflection of the nature of the interpenetration of the Holy Trinity again that actually God creates with the Father and the Son, that actually the Holy Trinity itself uh, creates the universe out of its interpenetrating creativity. If you like, we are the overspill of the love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a lot of Augustinian theology right there for you. Where creativity kind of comes out, it's poured out of the nature of God's own heart. And look at yourself. Look how you've been created. Incredible. You're incredible, and you're an incredible sign of God's incredible creativity. But that creativity happens in partnership. Your best ideas are never your first ideas, and your best ideas are rarely your own ideas. Oh, hold on. What do you mean? I really want my own idea. I want to be able to patent my own idea and my own song with my own name and my own album with my own face on the cover. We are built for relationship. Our minds are built for communion. And actually being in relationship with others in healthy creationships can spark all sorts of ideas which are shared. But if you believe in range, you'll know that many of the things that stimulate the most, you the most, don't come from yourself, they come from other people's creativity. We spark off one another, and we need to let go of the whole, my USP, and get into the idea of actually what the purpose of worship is, which is us all leading us all into the presence of a God who deserves to be worshipped, loved, and adored. So... Let's get down to the nitty-gritty. How can we support this? Stimulants. Oh, my goodness. He's referencing stimulants now. Well, it wouldn't be appropriate historically not to talk about creativity and stimulants, seeing as most of the best creatives over uh, millennia have used stimulants as a means of propagating their creativity. Um, and Christians aren't any different from that. In fact, although I wouldn't encourage any of you to use any illegal stimulants or benzodines as Plath and others used or the Beatles used extensively um, in the creation of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Band and other great albums that they produced. Christians use stimulants as a way of stimulating their creativity and caffeine is the first one I'd like to just touch on briefly. I'm only, I know you're laughing because you think this is somehow unholy, but A lot of great Christian work has been done under the influence of caffeine. (laughs) I'd just like to clarify, I don't actually drink coffee, so that kind of vindicates me from supporting caffeine, but I drink a whole host of Earl Grey teas, which, as a vicar, I think is authentic and also keeps me going quite well during the day. Beethoven had 60 beans per cup and would uh, grind out his own beans. He would count his own beans for his coffee before he began to write. And Beethoven wasn't the only one. Theologian, one of my favorite theologians, Kierkegaard, 
um, used to make a coffee sludge and then pour the coffee sludge into a cup of sugar. And then he'd eat the coffee sludge, sugar sludge, and that would elicit his best theological uh, ideas. A great modern theologian, a friend of mine, Simon Ponsonby, uh, famously sat out in a, a bookshop in uh, Oxford's uh, heart and used to drink back-to-back Starbucks lattes and produce some fantastic work under the influence of caffeine. Psychologists aren't really sure why caffeine helps us, but I guess it's best to understand it between our ideas of morningness and eveningness, that in morningness and eveningness we can have our best ideas, but ideas and implementation are a completely different thing. Lots of creatives have lots of ideas, but they struggle, they struggle with implementation. And actually what we have to do is have to bridge the idea towards practical implementation and ideas with stimulation. Now, I'm not really advocating that you use artificial stimulants to be more creative. I think they're matter of fact. At the end of the day, you'll either drink a lot of coffee or you won't. I don't recommend you drink too much, but I don't think there's anything wrong in drinking a little. What is important is that you recognize that actually the different brain states that you experience during the day have a different impact on how you'll function. And it goes back to the idea of freewheeling, that actually if morningness and eveningness enables you to provide your best ideas, then actually that central part of the day will probably provide you with some of the best implementation for your ideas. You need to work out whether you're in the mode for implementation or creation. And actually lots of creatives are thwarted not by the presence of quality ideas, but by the presence of quality implementation. Art is, in my mind, undoubtedly one of the best stimulation towards creativity, seeing as it unlocks a part of my brain which I don't seem to be able to access aside from art. So art is, for me, a drug-based stimulant which is wholly good and in God, seeing as God's created those things that are beautiful and good in order that we might receive the benefit of that connection, of that pleasure. And I wrote much of this talk after a walk through the V&A, which is just opposite my office in central London. I was inspired by a relief of Achilles mourning the loss of, uh, of Patroclus and uh, this sort of this great bust from the 17th century where Achilles was uh, holding Patroclus's head in his hands. Uh, and there was something about the image, I, I didn't actually bring it with you because they wouldn't let me take the bust off the wall, but the... Um, the image was a powerful one in that Achilles was wearing still his, his Spartan helmet and, um, with its great plume and Patroclus had uh, just his bare head and his kind of thick curls were being held in Achilles' hands. There's something about this vision of power and war but nurture and compassion. There was a great kind of paradox there that for me spoke about this experience of the two strands together, the, the kind of militancy of our creativity and also the compassion of our creativity. That actually, that, 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 that beautiful blend elicits something very good in the process. We can't be militant towards creativity without also being compassionate towards it as well. So art can be a great stimulation for you, and I'd encourage you to look broadly at art if you're not an artist per se to engage with art broadly, of all types, all manners, and all styles. And then there's the stimulant that I really want to recommend to you today, and that's worship. That actually, 
Engaging with the heart of God for me as the heart of the one who is ultimately creative seems the best mode by which we might become ultimately creative, whatever our creative outworking. Whether you're a worship leader or an artist in a secular sense, I think that engagement in worship seems to engage with the heart, the, the bank of ultimate creativity. I see a God who's created ex nihilo out of nothing, and that inspires me, seeing as you are faced with a blank canvas or a, a blank recording zone or a, a blank sheet of paper, and you're asked to create something good that, that come ha- somehow echoes the nature of God himself. In order to do that, you have to plug into God himself. Paul Balosh says, if we are spiritually dry and don't have anything fresh to stay, the answer is obvious. We need to drink of the living water. And in 2 Chronicles 29, 29 to 30, it says, when the offerings were finished, the king and everyone present with him knelt down and worshipped. You see, when the offerings are finished, we are stimulated to creative expression. That creativity in worship stimulates creativity in worship. That your best opportunity for being creative in your own worship is worshipping. And so many worship leaders I've worked with with emotional health issues have found this disconnect between the stage persona and then the private personal persona. That actually the backstage and the front stage have disconnected such that they're unable to be creative anymore. Your creativity as a worshipper will give you the best outcomes, both as a worship leader if you are one, or worship writer if you want to be one, but ultimately as a worshipper, which is what we all are. Actually, being a worshipper leads us to be worshippers, which leads us to be worshippers, which leads us to be worshippers and worshippers and worshippers. And so the cycle goes on and on and on and on, and we never lose connection with what it means to be creative, since that in itself is creative. But I want to move you from the idea of stimulus into the idea of creating a chrysalis of creativity for yourself. Um, Because creativity can be supported by your own creative setting, a place where ideas are remembered and visualized as clues. Human beings have been created as environmental creatures. And that's not a comment on the environment per se, it's a comment on your environment. That actually when God created Adam and Eve, he placed them in the garden. Notice that the garden wasn't the same as the rest of the world since God actually kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden into the wilds of the world where they weren't in an environment that was supportive of them. But their initial creativity was housed within the garden. And many, many Christians today who work in the area of creativity have not created for themselves a chrysalis of creativity. Instead, they have a backpack with an iPad and they are mobile 24-7. But they don't think about environment as supportive of the creative process because they think that's unnecessary since everything is ultimately spiritual and nothing is actually physical, which is, of course, a huge mistake because God's created the physical within which the spiritual exists. Hence, you have a body within which your spirit inhabits. So the environment is significant. And as Nick said, if you move your brain by half a degree, in a sense, you're in a place which you can acknowledge. He talks about Paul Simon throwing a tennis ball against the wall whenever he was writing a song. He would just go around his office throwing a tennis ball, which somehow distracted him from what he was trying to do to the point where he could write fantastic songs. Sam Bailey said, you need to be in a place that stretches you. And Tim said to me, you have to feel safe. You have to have the right people in the room. But I want to encourage you to think about a chrysalis of creativity, a place where 
a place which is an expression of your creativity. And notice if you've actually seen a, a butterfly make a, you know, come out of a chrysalis, the chrysalis itself breaks and a very small amount of the chrysalis is actually left because the wings of the butterfly are forged in the chrysalis. You might even be able to see it slightly here, that actually the chrysalis is also the wing of the butterfly. Then actually a chrysalis isn't just a container from which the butterfly appears, the chrysalis is the container which is the butterfly. And sometimes your own office or your own place of creativity speaks about your own creativity. A friend of mine called Charlie Maxey, who's a very well-known Christian artist, has a house which I'd say was probably the best example of a chrysalis of creativity I've ever seen. It's not the cleanest house in the world, and he probably he wouldn't mind me saying that, but it's the most creative house I've ever been in where even the cupboard doors are all painted and illustrated with cartoons. And you can't go to his toilet for five minutes. You'd have to stay there for about 40 minutes just to enjoy all of the art that's been scribbled on the walls around the toilet for so many different years. But the chrysalis of creativity promotes creativity, which supports creativity, which increases creativity. And you'll know this is true because, for example, Roald Dahl's writing room has been preserved a place of creativity where people can go and enjoy his creativity. Or Barbara Hepworth's Museum of Sculpture in St. Ives, which uh, preserved her workshop and her garden to show you where her creativity came from, and it in itself is now a piece of art, since it was the place of birth for her creative skill. What's your chrysalis of creativity? How can you propagate one in your life today? We've just got a few minutes left, so stay with me. I know this is detailed. We just want to hit up the idea of caring and not caring for a minute because this is one of the great paradoxes of creatives and this is the seesaw of caring and not caring. Um, when we say caring and not caring it's about not caring what people think and not caring about what people think makes you highly creative, innovative, rule-breaking, inspirational but on the flip side can make you disconnected, melancholic, self-absorbed and addicted. I just don't care what anyone thinks. Caring what people think can make you successful, popular, marketable and connected, but can also make you very mainstream, very uncreative, very dependent and potentially very paranoid. You are on the scales of caring and not caring. Never say, I just don't care, and never say, I care, without balancing out the reality that you both need to care and not care. That actually, if you want to be truly creative, you have to give up caring what other people think. At the same time, if you want to be truly creative, you have to care what people think. It's a great paradox that faces all creatives. But if you acknowledge the paradox, and also where you might be flipping into the, into the downsides of the creative balance, then you can begin to support yourself up again and go, actually, no, I need to, I need to care again. The creative persona is a complex one and we haven't got enough time to explore it very deeply here but I want to just mention that the creative persona offers a huge number of paradoxes and contradictions and there are three main contradictions in creativity. The first one is energy and rest. Huge amount of energy but a huge need for rest. The second one is extroversion and introversion which I've mentioned a few times. Nearly every creative appears to be an extrovert, 
but actually they're very nearly always an introvert who uses an extrovert persona as a way of presenting their material to the world and then withdrawing back into themselves again. And then there's the extreme level of openness versus the extreme sensitivity to the openness that's been shared. And there's a very eminent psychologist um, called Sitzent Malay, um, and he's put together some really interesting ideas about this, and they've been picked up on by Elaine Aron, who talks about the highly sensitive personality type. 15 to 20% of the population struggle in this way with high levels of sensitivity, which often uh, embody those contradictions. I would say knowing this is not particularly helpful in itself, but knowing it and using a supportive material to your own internal narrative can be really helpful. Actually saying, ah, I feel like I need to be big on stage, but actually I feel quite private in the background. That's okay. What you need to know is you don't need to be big all the time. Comedians, uh, in a particular study I read, were interviewed with 441 other individuals. And the 41 comedians scored the lowest in self-reported extroversion out of all candidates. 41 comedians, 400 other people non-comedians. And all 41 comedians scored the lowest in self-reported extroversion. It's an amazing paradox, isn't it? Have you ever seen Ruby Wax? Seen incredible extroverts? Yeah. Contradictions in creativity are key. Psychology Today says, if I had a word to describe what makes creative personalities different, it's complexity. Contradictory extremes, they're both extroverted and introverted at the same time. If you want to support your creativity, you have to nurture your extroversion and your introversion. And know that living authentic is living both, not living one or the other. Society might say to you, you need to tell me, are you an extrovert or an introvert? You need to put up your hand and say, friend, I am both. So what's the outworking of this as we come into land? Increasing creativity results in a significant rise in well-being. So as opposed to creative, creativity being associated with mental illness, it becomes associated with good mental health. I still paint when I feel stressed because it's good for me. It makes me well. It's part of my therapy. I want to encourage you to be creative as part of your therapy too. And therapy isn't an unchristian thing. It's just part of God's compassion to us. For creative people, there are few lows lower than the sense that creativity is drying up or dying out. But inversely, to increase one's creative flow is to enter into the place of greatest joy and well-being for the creative. So long, that is, that the value and purpose of the creativity is pointed to the creator, not to the created artist. I want to suggest that if the flow of your praise and thanksgiving is to God, then you'll find greater health in your creativity than ever before. Whereas if the flow of praise for your creativity is to you, you'll ultimately find it nihilistic. Each of us has to take responsibility for doing our creative best, the creative best that you can do with your own life. So says Galatians 6 verse 5. You, friends have a responsibility 
creativity, it's your responsibility, not just to make expressions of praise to God, but to make creative expressions to God for the rest of us. I'd love you to take your creativity seriously. And in so doing, I'd love you to nurture your minds in a way that's supportive, in a way that is generous, in a way that's grace-filled, and ultimately a way that's glorifying to the one who created you. Amen. Guys, that was um, obviously the first time I've ever done that talk, so it's a little longer than I anticipated, so apologies for that, but um, I wanted to get through everything that I'd, I'd been working on. Uh, what that means is that we have, we, it's actually lunch break now, and I'm sure you're relieved that it's a lunch, lunch break now because you've been incredibly patient. Um, but I'd love you if, you, if you've got questions or ideas about this that you'd love to point in my way, I honestly, I try and get back to people on Twitter, just at Vicar Will, or you can Facebook me the same, at Vicar Will, and carry on the conversation. And if you want particularly resources around emotional and mental health, then I encourage you to go to the mindandsoul.info website. And again, there's forums there where we discuss all this kind of stuff. And I'll make all these slides available to you there. So it's just www.mindandsoul, all together, all small, .info, I-N-F-O. And we'll go from there. God bless you. Have a fantastic lunch. Enjoy the rest of the conference.